Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Skinny Stimulus talks of a $500 billion bailout to break DC's deadlock. Antibody Alliance Regeneron teams up with Roche to boost production. Karma Waters will speak to the CEO of shipping giant Maersk and... You guys gonna go camping? Yeah. Okay, let's go do the campfire. Go, go, go. Let's go. Here, Liam. You wanna roast some oars? Yeah. Here's the magic melting. We'll ask one of its biggest stars if TikTok's time is up. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. As always, great to be with you. Today's show, I can tell you, is all about records and reality checks. There's no better time, therefore, to chat to famed short seller Jim Chanos as stocks begin the session at all-time highs. Yes. After weeks of failed attempts, the S&P 500 hit a record close Tuesday. The Nasdaq also hitting fresh records, too, although those milestones Maybe short-lived. Futures have softened in the past hour, so we shall see what happens when we open up. But that said, we're talking about the fastest rebound from a bear market on record. The S&P soaring some 54% from the lows hit just five months ago. It's been driven ultimately by massive amounts of central bank and government spending all around the world. If you held on to your nerve and bought the dip, you are having a great year as a result. But the global story is a very different picture. Japan and German stocks still down some 12% year-to-date. Chinese stocks are down 40% from their most recent record levels and down a further 1%, in fact, too, overnight. A reaction, perhaps, to comments from President Trump that he scuttled trade talks with China over the weekend, raising all sorts of questions about his commitment to the phase one trade deal as we head towards the election. The trouble in Asia doesn't end there either. New numbers showing Japanese exports falling 19% last month, the 20th month of declines, in fact. Exports to China, meanwhile, rose, but this number just continues to point out the challenges export-driven countries still face amid the ongoing pandemic for now. The path forward depends heavily on the four R's. They are the virus, the vaccines, November's U.S. presidential vote, and the volume of additional cash support we see from here. Cheating a little bit on the last one. We may have a breakthrough on that. Let's get to the drivers and find out. Republicans and Democrats are hinting at a pared down coronavirus relief deal to break the deadlock on the stimulus. Republicans have drafted a scaled back plan and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Democrats are willing to take a smaller deal to get an agreement passed. Christine Romans joins us on this. Christine, well, something is better than nothing. The problem is the thorniest issues here are perhaps the most vital ones when we're talking about support for individual states and for individual consumers. Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, when you talk about retail earnings this week, we have seen that the first round of stimulus was fantastic for consumer spending. People in their pandemic hunkered down mode spent a lot of money and a lot of money online, money that they got from the government in those stimulus checks and unemployment benefits. Now, the next phase here in terms of a, of a crisis for joblessness comes from state workers. These states have huge holes in their budgets that must be filled. Many states, uh, by, by law, they have to balance their books every year. They can't just run big deficits or print money to get their way out of it like the U.S. government can. And so they're going to need some help or 
where there are going to be layoffs of firefighters, of teachers, of streets and sanitation workers, uh, of these kinds of workers who are going to feel the pain immediately and potentially hold back the recovery. So uh, I think that in the economic numbers we've seen for the quarter, it's very clear here that there's a real fire burning for Congress to keep the support up because the economy is not back to normal. And that's the big dichotomy here as we watch Again, in aggregate, we'll be careful. Stocks hitting record highs. We know the underlying fundamentals here are in desperate need of ongoing support. And that's why more and more people, despite what we're seeing in stock markets, are saying, actually, we're worried about a a second pullback, a double dip recession here, particularly if we don't see this support forthcoming. Yeah, I mean, you've heard from the administration in particular that they expect a, a ferocious V recovery, and, and, and even the president will say we're in it. Uh, but it doesn't look that way at all when you realize that right now all the supports for the recovery we've seen so far have been pulled back. They're not there anymore. Small business loans are not there anymore. The jobless, extra jobless benefits are not there anymore. The White House has promised um, half of the amount of the extra uh, jobless support, but it's not in people's paychecks quite yet here. So there's really an urgency right now that the longer they wait and the more cautious they are, the worse it is for the recovery overall. So in a way, some of the recent economic numbers maybe are giving them pause, but they shouldn't. In fact, they should be confirming to policymakers that uh, the stimulus worked, the Fed support worked, uh, and now we have to wait for a vaccine and get our hands around the virus and we'll need support until then. Yeah, no room for complacency here. Christine Romans. Thank you so much for that. Joe Biden has officially become the Democratic Party's nominee for president. Well, thank you very, very much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you all. It means the world to me and my family. And I'll see you on Thursday. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The nomination came on the second night of the Democratic National Convention. His wife, Jill Biden, a longtime educator, closed out the virtual event from an empty classroom. Across this country, educators, parents, first responders, Americans of all walks of life are putting their shoulders back, fighting for each other. We haven't given up. We just need leadership worthy of our nation. Worthy of you. Another heartfelt moment. John Harwood is live in Washington for us. John, other standout moments for you last night? I think the standout moment, uh, Julia, was when Jill Biden in that speech said, how do you heal a broken nation the same way that uh, Joe Biden and I healed a broken family? Joe Biden, of course, lost his wife and uh, uh, young daughter in a car accident shortly after he was elected to the Senate. He later uh, married Jill Biden. They had another child together. They have a obviously a very strong relationship, which was highlighted by her remarks. Uh, but she cast it as um, uh, a recovery from the traumas of the Trump years. And that built on uh, Michelle, indictments, uh, Michelle Obama's indictment uh, of President Trump the previous night. Uh, this was more in the positive sense, uh, associating Joe Biden's empathy, his, his personal warmth, Uh, his concern for others uh, into uh, a tonic for the country. And I think that's the thing that will that stuck with me the most. You know, whenever we talk about business or politics, we talk about the idea of burying the bad news. I can't help but feel like those that are lightning rods for the Republicans, the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, were 
pretty much buried last night amid a broader sense and feel that the Democratic Party is trying to present this united front. She got, what, 90 seconds last night? I'm not surprised, but it did raise eyebrows, I think. Right. And, and they deployed her to uh, or she deployed herself to uh, be a nominating speaker for Bernie Sanders, which fit because she was uh, the uh, most prominent supporter uh, of Bernie Sanders among young Democratic activists. Uh, I do think that the party's message in the convention so far is uh, we have got a tent as large as it needs to be to pull the country together. So in addition to the young leaders, who 17 of them who uh, comprised the stitched together keynote address at the opening of the uh, show last night, you had uh, senior figures uh, that are familiar, especially to older Americans, and that's a key voting constituency this fall, uh, people like Colin Powell, uh, attesting to Joe Biden's character, his um, concern for uh, America's alliance, uh, alliances and its role in the world. Uh, all those things are designed to reassure, uh, as well as uh, uh, while the Democratic Party is trying not as aggressively uh, so far, but they certainly will in the fall campaign, to keep younger activists engaged and fired up. Michelle Obama uh, served some of that purpose. Barack Obama will serve it tonight as well. And what about Kamala Harris, vice presidential nominee here as well? What do we get from her tonight? Well, she is, uh, this is a, uh, in a very significant way, her broadest introduction to the American public. And uh, she represents the face of the Democratic future. Women are the key constituency of the Democratic Party. People of color uh, are the key constituency for the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris is not someone who is um, uh, on the far left edge of the party, though Republicans will try to paint her that way. She is a more pragmatic figure uh, that I think uh, you could say is in the mainstream of today's Democratic Party. To the left of Joe Biden, perhaps, and Joe Biden is the ultimate long-run centrist, uh, but uh, she's someone who fits because she is in the mainstream of what the Democratic Party is today, uh, and in that way, uh, she's going to be a bridge from Joe Biden to the Democratic future. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. John Harwood, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that there. You bet. All right, to new CNN poll finds around half of Americans would try to get vaccinated against coronavirus if one became widely available and at low cost. Elizabeth Cohen has all the details on this. Elizabeth, the standout here clearly is that that's simply not enough if you want to see some form of herd immunity. And that's assuming the vaccine is 100 percent effective, which is a high un, um, highly unlikely uh, fact in any case. Julia, you have it exactly right. What you need in order to get the kind of immunity that we're trying to achieve is a very effective vaccine combined with many people taking it. We don't know how effective the vaccine will work, but these poll numbers tell us a lot of people in the United States, it looks like as of now, they're going to say no, which is really problematic. Let's take a look at what this latest CNN poll shows. We polled people between August 12th and August 15, asking them the question, would you try to get a coronavirus vaccine if it existed? And 56% said yes, but 40% said no. 
for, if you have a vaccine, it's sort of like having a party and nobody shows up. If 40 percent of the of Americans don't take it, it's going to be very hard to reach the immunity levels that we need. Now, let's take a look over time. This is even worse, actually. In May, we asked the same question. Would you get a coronavirus vaccine? And 66 percent said yes. Now only 56 percent are saying yes. So it's, we're headed in the wrong direction. More people just over these past few months, 10 percentage point dive in the number of people who would say yes to a coronavirus vaccine. And Julia, you and I have talked about this before on your show, which is that the anti-vaccine folks have been hard at work, really hard at work. Go on Facebook. You'll be bombarded with it. All the messages about why you shouldn't get a coronavirus vaccine, most of it complete nonsense. However, the pro-vaccine groups have been very slow to start campaigns. There's really very little out there. The government has not yet started its campaign. And one does have to ask, what are you waiting for? Take a look at these numbers. Julia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I read an article from Brookings in the last 24 hours that said if you want people to take the vaccine in this country, you're going to have to pay them to do it, which is which is interesting as well. Um, Speaking of parties, though, let's talk about cocktails. And I'm talking specifically about antibody cocktails here, a deal between Roche and Regeneron. What do we know about this? So Regeneron is one of the major manufacturers of an antibody medicine. So these are medicines that almost in a way kind of work like vaccines in helping you create an immune response to the coronavirus. They're being tested out both as a treatment and as a preventative medicine. And what the news today is that Roche and Regeneron, Roche, of course, pharmaceutical giant, Regeneron, that the folks who actually make the medicine are going to team up to get that manufacturing up and going. So that's, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it's certainly good news to hear this, given that we've seen the reluctance of Americans to take a vaccine, maybe they would feel better about taking a drug. Julia? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? A treatment, perhaps, rather than taking a vaccine, Mm. given the uh, uncertainty and the inbuilt prejudice in this country against taking them. Right. Work to be done here to convince people. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A statewide emergency has been declared in California as more than two dozen wildfires burn. 37,000 customers are now without power and millions of people across the western United States have been told to take precautions against a record-breaking heat wave. The military leaders behind the suspected, suspected coup in Mali are pledging to hold new elections within a reasonable time, quote. They addressed the West African nation earlier and announced a border closure along with a nightly curfew. Mali's president dissolved the parliament and resigned on Tuesday after weeks of destabilizing protests. EU leaders are holding emergency talks by video on the crisis in Belarus. The European Parliament president says there is every reason to fear escalating repression, calling on Europe to support the demands of protesters for new elections and to help end a crackdown on dissent. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But still to come, a crisis-tested Maersk lifts its outlook for 2020. I speak to the CEO of the world's biggest shipping company. And TikTok careers on the line. Viral video star Zach King joins us to discuss the challenges of creating content as geopolitical storm clouds gather. That's all coming up. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the Bulls are taking a breather after finally propelling the S&P 500 to record highs on Tuesday. Futures, as you can see, trading mostly flat. Tech 
Just dipping into the red here, as usual, big name tech stocks playing a big role in pushing the S&P to the records. As we discuss frequently, Amazon rallied some 4%, Tesla cruising 3% higher. Both companies also sitting at record highs. Apple rose almost at 1% yesterday, too. It's very close to hitting a milestone of its own, the first $2 trillion market cap stock in Wall Street history, Apple current valuation right now at $1.98 trillion, just to give you the exact figure. Lots of support, but let's not forget the skepticism here too. A recent survey by the American Association of Individual Investors says just 23% of market participants believe that the S&P 500 can move higher for the rest of the year. Well, our next guest believes the current market is setting up to be one of the greatest shorting opportunities of all time. He's a man who reportedly made millions betting against a disgraced German fintech giant Wirecard and says we're entering a golden age of fraud. And that man is no other than Jim Chanos, the founder and president of Kinikos Associates. And he joins us now. Jim, fabulous to have you on the show. Good morning. Hi, Julia. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. If we're talking about one of the greatest shorting opportunities of all time, it's going to take one heck of a reality check here. What gives us that? Well, what what we see is is in the top couple deciles of the market. Um, and and it, it reminds us a lot, for, for those of us that are graybeards, of, of the late 90s, when there was a, the vast number of stocks were reasonably priced, if not sometimes cheap. But that which the market loved went to ever-increasing valuations. And that's what we're now seeing starting in the fourth quarter of last year as retail began to pour into the market, uh, despite your your citing of the uh, AAII survey. Um, really, we're seeing uh, uh, people chase stories, chase concepts. And you know the financial markets uh, generally exist to allocate capital to those businesses that can, can best return on that capital. But every once in a while, the market sort of flips that around and begins to create companies to satisfy the market. And that's the phase of the market we think we're in now, where you're seeing things like SPACs and and companies soar on stock split announcements. Uh, A few months ago, we had a a little craze in bankruptcy stocks, companies that were literally worthless. Um, And and all that behavior is, is, is worrisome to us. Rusha Sharma of Morgan Stanley Investment Management told us recently on this show that 20% of S&P 500 companies or listed companies are zombies, that they're simply being kept afloat by all the money, the stimulus, the support sloshing around. Is that an opportunity for someone like you as a short seller or is that a huge burden because bankrupt, failing companies simply don't go out of business? Yeah, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I think that, that we continue to see this sort of deflationary trend in that you don't you don't see companies that shouldn't be in business go out of business. They stick around and they and they cut prices. And then you have the other deflationary trend from from the other coast, if you will, with uh, with the gig economy companies uh, like Uber and Lyft and others that just don't care about uh, running billions of dollars of losses. That's that's their business model, and so they keep pressure on prices and wages. And so it's all sort of a vicious circle. Um, and it's, I think, one of the unintended consequences of, of just really, really easy money and very, very low rates um, that I think uh, people aren't appreciating, or at least our policymakers aren't appreciating, is just how deflationary those policies can be in an attempt to prop up the economy. Yeah, and suppressing innovation at the same time, too. Let's talk Wirecard, because I, I heard you made a lot of money on this one. 
Well, my clients, my clients made a lot of money on it. They're, they're, oh, not, not me. <laughs> Uh, it was a it was a big big position for us in the spring and 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 since uh, last year, and it's it's quite a saga. I mean, it it, it was a, for those of you who don't know, it was a German payments processing company that was one of the darlings uh, placed in the DAX 30, and and the signs were everywhere that it was a fraud, and and yet the German regulators not only looked the other way, but um, but sort of went out of their way to look the other way, it appears. And, and now you have one of the executives as a fugitive from justice. Uh, it's, it's a mess. But uh, what was so incredible was that the signs were all there if you were looking. It I was mean, hiding in plain sight, if you like. Yeah, it was hiding in plain sight. The, the regulators investigated the press. They investigated short sellers. The auditors kept signing off on the accounts. I mean, the golden age of fraud here, Jim, these are the layers of protection that are supposed to protect, you know, you're incredibly intelligent. You do your analysis. But for ordinary investors, they, they simply lose money on these things. Well, exactly. The, the, as you say, the, the gatekeepers or the, the people who are charged to, to sort of prevent this, and we always like to say that you know, the regulators are, are financial archaeologists and journalists and short sellers are financial detectives. And in this case, it was exactly, exactly right. I mean, it was the FT with amazing reporting, uh, as well as other, other organizations. And then the short sellers who, who Baffin, the German regulators, actually went after, um, who kept blowing the whistle and, and nobody listened. Um, and, and that's why I sort of said that I think we're in the golden age of fraud right now, Julia, is that that some of the institutions that are there to protect investors seem to be actively encouraging a lot of this behavior, and, and it's frightening. I teach a course on the history of financial market fraud, and uh, this is this wave that that I think uh, we've seen, um, and, and we're going to continue to see. I think is going to uh, put all the rest to to shame. What are you teaching about Tesla, Jim? Because you win some and you lose some. And this trade, I know, has been incredibly painful. Um, it's, it's been painful, yes. When do you pull the Two plug things. on this one? I've Two seen things. your analysis, well, by the way. I know it's very comprehensive. And that story's not played out yet. But this must be no, a really a simple, painful trade. It's a very painful trade. It reminds us of our America online trade of the late 90s, where we were short AOL. I, not to bring up a sore subject to anyone at at, uh, at your organization, but uh, but we, we were short America Online because we thought there was accounting fraud, which turned out to be the case, and yet the stock went up uh, eightfold on us. Um, and uh, and then Time Warner found out the hard way uh, what uh, what they had bought. You know, Tesla. A very simple observation just on Tesla, and and I think it goes to the the fact that what I talked about at the beginning about retail investors you know, putting just ever increasing valuations on concept stocks. Um, Tesla has 0.5% of the global auto share market, and they lose money selling cars, $55,000 cars on average. All the money they've made when they've reported profits have come from selling tax credits. So this is an unprofitable automaker with less than 1% of the global auto market. And it probably gets more press and more ink than all the others combined, as you know. And so this has become a concept stock, and and it's become a canvas upon which investors, you know, paint their hopes and dreams. And these kinds of things, if you go back again to 1999, 2000, we saw a number of these types of stocks, JDSU, uh, Qualcomm, a variety of them, uh, just go absolutely parabolic. 
and as as people put ever higher and higher valuations on what they thought were the new economy uh, companies, only to find out that they were exactly uh, governed by the same laws of supply and demand as other companies. And uh, I think at the end of the day, Tesla is an auto company. It is not some uh. sort of. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know that's sacrilegious. <laughs> But I do think they make cars, and 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 everything else is uh, is the company painting a picture of some futuristic uh, set of businesses that uh, are pretty mundane, like making batteries. Um, yeah, I was going to say so, that's what the bulls will be saying when they're watching this interview, shaking their head and going, "That's the big mistake you're making, calling them yeah, a car company rather than a technology company." At you what price do you pull the plug? What's that? At what price do you pull the plug and go? Okay, well, this is too painful. We've recast the position. We've recast the position. Obviously, we've had to risk manage it, but we're still yeah. short, and it's it. And uh, we've bought puts uh, to limit the upside, and you know it's a smaller position because it has to be on the short side. Your your losers uh, for the time being, anyway, get bigger, so you have to risk manage them. And any, any professional knows that. But yeah. again, it's it's one it's one position of many of ours. It's one of our favorites, but it's one position of many, just as Wirecard was. As you look around the world, what worries you most, at least in the short term? I think one of the things that stands out to me is the working from home phenomenon. I, I, maybe it's because I'm in New York, but I see a lot of commercial real estate that is seemingly empty. Do you see risks yeah. in this, Jim? So, so the, the commercial real estate is something I think that not enough people are paying attention to. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons is, is that the banking system is not sending out warning signs as it did in previous cycles. Um, and, and one of the, the reasons for that is in the CARES Act, um, that gap accounting, in effect, was suspended for banks for loans that have gone into what they now call deferral. So prior to that, if, if someone stopped paying you, uh, stopped paying the bank interest, um, it would go into non-performing and non-accrual. And now if the loan is deemed impaired by COVID, Banks can continue earning interest on those loans that aren't paying them interest. Uh, so, for example, there's one New York bank that, that is very heavily aggressively in, in commercial real estate in New York City. And over 20% of their loans were in deferral as of June 30. Now, in the old days, we would have said a, a bank with 20% non-performers is, is headed for the rocks. And, and this bank trades at a premium to book value. And, in fact reported earnings that would have been less than half of what they reported had they been not accruing the loans that actually are not paying them interest. Who's so the we're, bank, it, Jim? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm not going to name the bank, but your, your okay. viewers can do it. It's a very aggressive New York City mid-sized bank. But, um, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of banks like this that have 20%, 15% of their loan book currently is on so-called deferral. And so far, the market hasn't gotten worried about it. But if you look at some of the big New York landlords, like Vornado or, or, or S.L. Green or some of the others, you'll see that the, the rents are dropping at over 20% a year, and the cash flow is dropping as much as 30% year over year. And, and that's just getting started, I suspect. Um, whatever you might think about work from home, I think the need for, for additional office space is probably nil in a lot of cities. And the question will just be, how much absorption? I would also point out that right now, urban vacancies are at 14% in offices in the US. That's a number that normally we see at the peak, not at the beginning of a cycle. 
So, um, and then one more point, we looked at some FDIC data recently, and uh, most banks, with the exception of the very largest, I should add, the, 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 the giant banks do not have this risk, but a lot of mid-sized banks are at all-time record exposure to commercial real estate, higher than in the, before the GFC and higher before the last commercial bust in the late 80s. Um, wow. And so there are, there are some worrisome, uh, worrisome signs out there. Okay. I've stolen all my time. I'm going to get you back very soon, please, to talk China. And I know you're a friend of Joe Biden, too, so we want your uh, wisdom on that as well. But uh, for now, I have to thank you because I have to get to the market open, Jim. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to hear from you and get your wisdom. Jim Chanos, the president of Kinescos Associates. Uh, stay safe and speak to you soon. Thank you. All right, up next, shipping giant Maersk says it expects to come out of the pandemic stronger. The CEO joins us and we've got the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. We're beginning the session a little changed after yesterday's milestone record high for the S&P tech pulling back from record highs. Retail chain Target, though, one of the bright spots today. It's rallying more than 7% after reporting its strongest quarterly sales growth on record. More details on those Target results. But I can tell you, online sales, wow, breaking records here. The S&P has tended to pull back after hitting records too the past few years. So a bit of a pullback here. Some consolidation, let's call it that, not out of the ordinary. It's also important to note that stocks have risen to records on light summertime volume. It may take until early September to get a good read on the real strength of this market. And that is a very important point. What shares in Danish shipping company Mesk are up over 4% too. The company raising its outlook for 2020 above the level that was given back in January. Mesk says the pandemic hit demand in the second quarter, but that lower fuel prices and higher shipping rates compensated for the drop. And joining us now is Soren Sko. He's the CEO of Mesk. So fantastic to have you on the show as always. The big news this morning, that reinstated guidance and actually better than what we were seeing. What gives you that confidence? Well, we, uh, we've, of course, had a very negative effect from uh, the pandemic in terms of lower volumes in the second quarter, 16% in our ocean business, 14% neck down in, in our terminals. But uh, uh, relatively good pricing uh, and a fantastic job on, on all the costs that we control. And then we, uh, we also, of course, benefited from a lower fuel price. Uh, all those factors combined meant that we could report a, an operating earnings that were up uh, by 25% and a net result that was uh, almost triple of what it was in the same quarter last year. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers here. The operating cost management here was astonishing, a 16% drop, I, I believe, in the quarter here. What assumptions are you making, though, when you look at that forecast? Are we assuming that we don't go into a sort of material second wave style lockdown environment? Yeah, well, first of all, we, of course, uh, are making the assumption that the actual development in, in, in volumes will not drive our results to the same extent that we, we probably would have thought uh, in previous years. I mean, the fact that we are able to deliver better earnings on 16% lower volumes in Q2 says something about that we're uh, doing something right with our uh, network. 
but, but the main underlying assumption for, for the second half is still that, that we do not believe that we will see a, a global lockdown in, in, in the same way as we saw in the second quarter. We believe, of course, uh, that there will be flare-ups and, and second waves uh, a number of places, but that they will be dealt with at a local or, or regional uh, level, as, as, as we're seeing now in, in, in Europe, in Asia, in North America uh, and, and, and elsewhere. I remember you saying to me vividly when we spoke last time that China's 30% of your business, whether we're looking at warehousing, logistics or, or terminals. So I'm always fascinated to hear from you what you're seeing there. Well, we are seeing a, a good, good, uh, good business in, in in China now. Of course, uh, it's a long time since China came out of the uh, pandemic. Uh, the interregional trade in, in in Asia is doing fine, as is actually the Pacific trade, and I think that's probably one of the most interesting uh, stories right now. We today uh, in August have more capacity deployed on the Pacific trades, uh, uh, moving goods from from Asia and China uh, into into the U.S. as uh, uh, as the imports into the U.S. are up year on year in, in June and, and, and July. So it's a quite an astonishing uh, development uh, after, the, after the lockdown, uh, the consumer, the U.S. consumer came back very strongly. Yeah, I mean, that fits with certainly some of the retail data as well that we've been seeing uh, in recent days as well. Another thing that I think is, is critical to get your insights on here is supply chains. If there's one thing we've learned during this pandemic, it's about how resilient or lacking resiliency supply chains are for companies. And you can buy in bulk from a certain source, but that makes you very vulnerable in the crisis, or this kind of crisis that we've been through. How are clients changing and are they changing in light of what we've seen and been through? There's no doubt that many of our customers will, once they are out of the pandemic, will sit down and take a look at their supply chains to see what worked, what didn't work. I think it's a fact that uh, our network kept operating throughout the pandemic. The ships were sailing, the ports were open, our warehouses were operating and, 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 and so on. So, so getting goods transported from one end of the world to the other was never an issue for supply chains. The problems that customers uh, experienced were that in many cases they had uh, single source uh, vendors. So if they bought 100% of a component with one with one uh, supplier then the, and that supplier mm. was based in Wuhan, you had a problem. Uh, another uh, issue uh, many customers faced was that over many years, the buffer inventories had slowly but surely been well down as they relied more and more on just in time. And, and then when the supply chain breaks, then obviously you have a, a big, uh, big problem. We believe our customers will be thinking about more about uh, inventory. They will certainly want to make sure that they do not rely on single source situations. We also believe that they will demand more, more visibility from us in terms of where goods are in the supply chain. And we are sure that they will demand more ability to affect outcomes while in, the, while in transit. We don't think that the supply chains globally are going to change very much. There was already a, a trend of moving certain kinds of manufacturing out of out of China, but into Southeast Asian countries that will, that will uh, um, we, we believe, accelerate. But bringing everything home and, and, and consolidating in one location is also not a very good, uh, very good strategy if, if that location gets hit. Yeah, it's all about diversification, quite frankly. And your point about visibility is also a really important one. And I know you're working with IBM on digital ways to provide that visibility, but we'll get you back to talk about that. And I will save that for next time. So fantastic to have you on the show, as always. So the CEO of Maersk there. Thank you, Julia. Talking. Thank you.
Thank All right, you. still to come on First Move. Style we going for today? I would really love this style. Oh, yeah, love it here. I love it, it's great. Yeah. The king of magic and social media, Zach King, the third most followed TikTok star in the world, joins us next. You guys wanna go camping? Yeah. Okay, let's go do a campfire. Go, go, go. Let's go. Here, Liam. You wanna roast s'mores? Yeah. Mason, let's do a fire, come on. Here you go. That was that King and his children and a piece of his trademark magic and clever editing. Let's be clear, that has propelled him to stardom on several social media platforms. Most recently, he's become a hit on TikTok, where he quickly amassed more than 47 million fans, making him the third most followed creator in the world. His most popular TikToks have been viewed more than two billion times. Zach is no stranger to other platforms, though, too. He started off on YouTube and Twitter's now defunct Vine. He's also cast a spell on some big companies too, leading to collaborations with Disney, Hasbro, Nike, Coca-Cola, and more. And thanks to the magic of television, Zach is with us now. Zach, fantastic to have you with us. I feel like you're somebody who can definitely say they love the day job. You make I, I some really <laughs> fun it's videos. It's not a job, it's just I get to show up and work with an amazing team and, and production crew for what I get to, to make every day, which is these magic videos. Yeah, they are. They are. They are magical, and you do have two very cute children. Thank Tell you. Me, Thank you. Is there anything special, really, about TikTok as a platform in terms of the technology it provides? What's your view? Yeah, so it does a couple of things. The, the 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 magic behind TikTok to me is the algorithm and how they've leveled the playing field for mm. so many different people. A lot of people who wouldn't even call themselves creators when they log onto the app. You know, one of the most popular things today when I talk to kids who are in middle school or high school, they a lot of them will say they want to be YouTubers. And that kind of has transcended into becoming kind of TikTokers where they know it's a little bit more accessible. And you have 80-year-old grandmas or you have an 8-year-old kid go on there with their family and make a TikTok. And it has the chance of going viral. So um, what I like about it is it's encouraged a lot of people to actually create and kind of become going from the consumer of the content on the feed to actually thinking, oh, I think I can try this. Whether it's, you know, it might start out as a dance move, it might actually jump into one of the other many cool hobbies that they showcase on the app in different communities. So I love that it's getting people up and, and creating every day. So TikTok should definitely hire you to do their PR. The big question is, is it replicable? Could someone else do this in light of the, the challenges that TikTok here in the United States, but around the world too now faces? Yes and no. I mean, in in mm. the long run, sure, there'll be many people who can copy a similar algorithm. And I think TikTok's even disclosed what's in their algorithm so that people can can have access to that um, in the future. And so, sure, the algorithm can be replicated, but I don't think you can replicate that exact culture. You know, you see Instagram Reels launching a very similar format around the world right now uh, to compete directly with the TikTok feature. Um, and I think that's great that, you know, Instagram is is trying to copy that and, and make that for, you know, for me, where that's one of my other big followings, that could be a neat feature for me to grow again on the Instagram. But for TikTok, you can't fully copy that community. You know, it has taken a life form of its own. Um, there's a lot of different creators on there that are taking chances in ways that they win. On Instagram, you kind of have your set way that you create. Uh, and that just naturally happens on platforms over the years. Even Vine had that where... 
you may it kind of becomes just a, a comedy skit page uh, and and it finds its its rhythm there but for TikTok it's kind of it you know it's been changing finding itself for a while um, it, it started with a lot of dance trends and music heavy stuff and now it, it's kind of really diversified and if they go long form here I think this is a chance and open up a partner program it's a chance for it to really take a next season of its life so I'm excited what the TikTok team could do. Well, you've made this into a, a business. You've made this into a business opportunity. And I know because I've seen what you've said in the past that actually some part of going from just doing this for fun to getting revenue from it to then making it into a career in a business is diversification. What if TikTok wasn't around? Because it's a, it's a viable risk. Would your business be damaged? And would there be creators on the platform that, that have a revenue stream that suddenly lose it? Yeah, for me, in the short term, it would hurt just a little bit, um, but it is about diversification. That's what I always, always tell new creators who are just starting in or reach out for advice is, you know, even other platforms, it's not just diversifying on Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or Vine because all platforms are go through the thing, but you actually don't have a direct connection there. You know, look at Facebook years ago, uh, eight years ago when we started creating content there. Um, you had access to 100% of the audience, and it was great until the the paywall hit. And even you know brands obviously had to start paying to access the audience. But now you really only get access to one or two percent of your audience when you hit post. Mm. Uh, so without paying, so uh, ultimately, like you got to start an email list. There are services for text now. There's a lot of ways you can directly connect, and, and they your your viewers can become your customers um, and have a tighter relationship with you. So that's what I'm always trying to cultivate. Um, for myself as a creator. Is it less cool or less usable to people if a Microsoft owns it or an Oracle owns it? Zach, would it make a difference to you? Do you think it would make a difference to, to TikTok users and content creators? I can't, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, it's not, it doesn't make it less cool at all. I think it's, it, at this point, the, uh, the community on TikTok would be excited, whoever owns it, if it helps uh, prevent it from a ban. And because the, the, the livelihood of so many creators is beginning to flourish on TikTok. And that's what I'll be most sad about if it does get banned, where you have your mid-sized creators, your, your low-tier creators who are just starting. Maybe they couldn't quite make it on YouTube or, or on another platform in the past, but TikTok has become that, that place for them to really get some momentum. And to have that shut down, especially when TikTok is just rolling out their, their new creator fund, which you know apparently is supposed to be paying out up to a billion dollars in three years, which is pretty substantial. Wow. It's not enough enough to keep you know all the creators uh, long term, but it's enough to begin, and so that's an exciting first step. Um, but it'll be that that mid to low tier creator that'll really be hurting uh, if they're not you know diversifying because it's harder at that level. Um, it's right. easier when you have forty five million, you can translate to other platforms and pivot. But the smaller channels, those are the ones that'll suffer the most. You may have one or two more. That Harry Potter video was just phenomenal. Zach, I was distracted listening to you and trying to watch the video at the same time. Thank you for coming it's a on. Fun one. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch and we'll, uh, we'll see where this goes. Zach King, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, coming Thank up, you. retail boom continuing for some. Target, Lowe's reporting earnings. They were strong. We'll discuss next. Breaking news into CNN. The European Union says it does not recognize the results of the recent election in Belarus and will shortly impose sanctions on those who were involved in electoral fraud. 
The European Commission is calling for new elections and says it will reroute 53 million euros earmarked for Belarus away from the government and towards civil society. We will continue to keep you abreast of any further developments and, of course, the, uh, the news of those sanctions when we get them. All right, let's take a final look at the markets here. The main U.S. indices mixed. It's a mixed picture. We are higher, though, for the Dow, as you can see, but the Nasdaq under a bit of pressure. The S&P 500 once again on target for another record close. We've also had some strong retail earnings today, too, which is helping out shares of Target. And lows are trading higher after both reporting surging sales. Claire Sebastian is with us now. Claire, focus on Target first. Target well and truly hitting the bullseye here. Wow. Yeah, pretty extraordinary numbers, Julia. I think it's worth pointing out for a company that size where they have the best part of 2,000 stores in the U.S. to deliver 24% uh, comparable sales, that, that same store sales. That is extraordinary. Add to that the numbers for digital, which were up some uh, 195%. Digital sales almost tripling compared to a year ago. Bear in mind, Target has been really strong for the past couple of years. The share price doubled nearly last year. So this is sort of a, a good quarter on top of another good quarter the previous year. So extraordinary uh, to see, Julia. I think the question uh, both for Target and for Lowe's that we also saw deliver a very strong quarter today is how sustainable is this? Mm. They're, they're saying that they're sort of seeing the numbers moderating a bit as we go through the summer. Uh, will that come down even further as we see the waning of stimulus and uncertainty perhaps around back to school? Target, I will say, pretty confident. They say that they've made $5 billion in market share gains in the first half of the year, added $10 million digital customers. Lowe's a little more cautious. They tend to say that the second half of the year is slower for home improvement in general, but they're investing heavily in e-commerce, and that, they say, is paying dividends. Yeah, I picked up on that too. The CEO of Target making the point that, yes, the stimulus checks have helped, but even as the stimulus wand, we've continued to see strong growth. And that was what took the shine off the retailers from yesterday, that sort of concern about the lack of stimulus. So phenomenal results. The question is, can they continue? Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for uh, that report there. All right, that's it for the show. Thank you for watching First Move. Great to be with you. We'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Stay safe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.